the one thing I would say about my career is, is violence has always been kind of a part of it. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 19 of My Way. This is the second part of an unexpected conversation I had with a visitor to my tiny village in South Africa called Grayton. If you haven't listened to episode 18, go do that first. Also, this episode is not family friendly as it contains several F-bombs and some graphic descriptions and talk of drugs and murder. So, you know, take that into account. Before I get on with the conversation, I need to explain something. I'm a little late in posting this week because I was traveling. I edited this episode in three different countries. <laughs> I edited in hotel bars, airport lounges, 30,000 feet above the earth, and even on a bus stuck in traffic for three hours in London. When people asked about what I was doing, I found more clarity every time I had to explain this podcasting thing. And this particular podcast is my coping mechanism. I find it so very easy to simmer in righteous anger these days, to pigeonhole people by their gender, their age, their nationality, race, political leanings, socioeconomic position, and on and on and on. And every time I start to do this, a little voice inside my head says, yeah, but what's the backstory? So this podcast is my attempt to get at a backstory and maybe in the process build a little bit more appreciation and compassion for my fellow humans because really we're all just trying to figure out our own life puzzles, aren't we? And also it's fun. <laughs> so thanks for listening. Back to my conversation with former DEA agent Tommy Sendrick. So Quantico was a neat place, you know, like... Every other young guy you know Quantico from either the FBI, Behavioral Science Unit, you know, that's where Quantico, Virginia is, the training academy of the FBI. And we shared the academy with the FBI at that time. I, I love the academy. Everybody goes, oh, I hated my time there. Couldn't stand it there. Oh, man, they gave you a big lunch. Um, you worked out and you shot guns. Yeah, occasionally you had to go to class too and learn some stuff. But and how long was that? How long was the training? Seventeen weeks at that time. Seventeen, eighteen weeks. So and um, it's full on. Like you live there. Yeah. You're you're living there during the week. I was fortunate. I didn't live far from there, so on the weekends I could get a pass to go home if mm -hmm. you if you wanted. So I I would go home because I was married at the time and I would go to spend the weekend with my wife. But I had to be back by I think seven o'clock Sunday night. But yeah, so I got done there and I. I guess, I guess, what was it, maybe three, four weeks in, they you pick your assignment post. And like, like I was saying about Imperial County, I got assigned to beautiful Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> the great garden state, as I tell everybody. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Really? Indeed, yeah, yeah. I went there and I met and worked with some of the best cops in the world. They were just great investigators. You just learned so much, and, and they took you to a different level so fast. I was used to 
you know, street corner buys, maybe guys bringing in a kilo, but you, you were in New Jersey. You had the Colombians there. You had, you know, you had them coming over from New York. You had Dominicans. You had such a wide variety of nationalities and you had the nationalities that were bringing in the drugs. So your life changed pretty quick and you learned a whole new side of the game. And, mm. uh, and I was fortunate to work with those guys. And then we had great bosses at the time. I, and what happens with that is then as you're growing up in the agency, you have people you can call and get either advice, favors. Hey, I'd like to go here. Is there a chance you can put in a good word for me? And that carries a lot of weight mm-hmm. as long as you're not a fuck up. Right. But you can't not you can't be a fuck up. Well, you can be a fuck up and get mm-hmm. that. But I, I was always very fortunate. I got I was always able to go to the good places and, and work great cases and work great guys. Some guys don't get that lucky. I think it's who you are and what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. New Jersey was a great place for me. Worked hard, drank hard. I mean, we would drink all night and go do a raid the next day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Um, Because you're you're young. Yeah. You know, your body bounces back. And, you know, I have my Your metabolism is your best friend at that time. Um, But we made great cases. We had a lot of fun. Just it was it was just a, a special place and a special time. My wife hated New Jersey. I was fortunate. I, I made some really good cases while I was up there, and I put in for a voluntary transfer to come back to the Washington D.C. area. She just wanted to come home, so it was time to come home. It's time to come home. I could have stayed my whole career up there. I, I loved it. I got to do everything in my career I've wanted. I didn't do a foreign spot, but as we'll get to later, the group I was in, I got that that mm-hmm. taste fed too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always wanted to work in Colombia or work in Mexico or work in some of these other areas. Yeah. And, but I got to, so yeah. it all worked out. So, but yeah, so we went back home to DC. So, getting closer to Grayton. Getting closer to Grayton. Mm-hmm. So what's the next step after that? The next step is working in Washington, D.C. I was working, and it was kind of the normal, same old, you know, drug stuff. But then I got sent to the DEA, had what we call as a mobile enforcement team. And what we did is we had a group of guys that would travel to different locations throughout the Washington, D.C. field office and work cases. And that's where I met Eric Stouch, who became a common thread for me over my DEA career from 99 on. My partner, my friend, you know, just a great guy who, you know, is one of my closest friends today. But we started working together in D.C., and then he went to this mobile enforcement team, and he was like, ah, I think you might like it, right? So, you know, when your buddy says, ah, you might like it, you're like, yeah, give it a shot, right? Mm -hmm. Whether your wife likes it or not is completely irrelevant, okay? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, because my buddy said to, so I did. We worked together on the mobile enforcement team, and I really enjoyed it. And then... The team I was on ultimately went to work in Washington, D.C., and I worked for uh, a very good friend, John McCabe, at that time. He was the group supervisor. Um, I became his backup group supervisor, and I worked with great guys in that group, really good guys. We were doing really great work, working a really violent area of Washington, D.C. at the time. Clay Terrace, um, Lincoln Heights, just, just heroin everywhere. 
the one thing I would say about my career is is violence has always been kind of a part of it. That's what seems to have been the common thread from the time I was a cop in Washington, D.C., a cop in Laurel, although I always worked drugs, it always was about violence, and it was always about people being murdered, related to drugs. So when I was on uh, working for John, one of the great stories was we wanted to get a lot of homicide information about this area because we wanted to try and make a difference and solve some of the homicides or help homicide in Washington, D.C. solve some, solve some of the homicides. So... Earl DeLauder was a former homicide detective, and there were guys that trusted him, but homicide's a weird group of guys normally, right? Especially if they're old-time guys. Um, they don't trust right away. There was this old-time homicide detective, Tony Parker, black guy in D.C. And Tony was one of the slickest, just sharpest guys you'd ever know in homicide, right? And I was trying to get Tony to work with us, and I was we, Earl and I are talking to him, and we're drinking at the FOP run one night, and I'm getting his shit face strong. So Tony and I play a pool game for him to start giving me information, and I won the pool game. So that's how we ended up starting to get the information and, and made an alliance with Tony. And that made a big difference. And and the one thing you find is with cops, sometimes it's not about things other than drinking together, finding a common ground, and maybe making a wager or two to get the information. Right. And then once they know you're a decent guy, you know, once you help them and they realize that you're not out just looking to bring glory to yourself, but you're actually out there trying to do the right thing, they'll trust you and provide you the information because they know that they'll get they'll get it back. Um, so we did that, and we were extremely successful. We worked with another old-time black homicide detective, Tony Duvall. And Tony, Tony was a lover. Tony had more women than you could shake a stick at. I mean, he was a big man too. I mean, like, like, not just like a big guy, but Tony was kind of fat. But mm -hmm. the women loved Tony. <laughs> Just absolutely loved him, and he had a very white, silky voice. Oh my God. And I loved Tony Duvall to death. I would laugh for hours sitting there with him. But Tony helped us w with a lot of those homicides too, and we ended up really doing a good job there. And we lowered violent crime during the time we were there by 60%. And it was something that could have been sustainable. It, wherever we were because we had the right right group of guys together and we had the right leadership. John McCabe was the group supervisor, but John McCabe was he had he was such a good agent and had so much political strength within DEA that he made all the difference in making this group run. When John left, it kind of went away. I could fight all I wanted, but I had a new group supervisor come in, um, and it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I left. So I went to a task force group, and then um, my mom had just recently come back from uh, the United Kingdom. She was living in England. Uh, she was working for NSA in England. She was assigned to um, Cheltenham, which is where GCHQ, the NSA, UK version of NSA. Okay. And my mom worked there and lived in this quaint little English village and absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was 2005. She had been there five years. And my mom had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. My father had been dead a long time. My father died when I was 20. Oh, okay. Which has a huge part in my whole life, too, of course. But my mom got diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So I, 
used one of my favors. DEA, you earn favors mm -hmm. if you do good work. I called John McCabe and I said, hey, look, this is what's going on with my mom. She's coming back from London. Uh, I need to be around to help her when necessary and things like that. I, I think being in Baltimore would be much better for me. And my mom was going to um, get treatments at a place in Columbia, Maryland, which wasn't far from where I lived, too. It was a little bit close, about 20 miles. Mm -hmm. So that that was a good thing because I was able to help my mom. And I should say, too, that my best intentions of helping my mom, actually, I, I don't know that I was really good at it. I think my wife was better at it than I was. Mm -hmm. My wife, of course, because I was always working, my wife ended up taking my mom to her treatments. I would go, but not as much as my wife did. But my mom ended up living like a mile and a half from me. She moved to a house. She would be over with my wife and my daughters three nights a week having dinner or going out to dinner. And she was at my house every Sunday for dinner. And every Saturday I was up drinking a beer at her house in the afternoon. So again, not really having a reason to ever leave where I'm at. Of course, in, I get a call from Eric Stouch in late 2010, 2011. He says, hey, working in this group called the 960 group in uh, DEA. It's over at our special operations division. He goes, I think you'd fit. I was like, what do you mean I'd fit? He goes, ah, it's kind of a slick work. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you know, it's not just by bust and stuff like that. It's being creative and uh, running sting operations and creating false narratives to get people in the right positions to do bad things and lock up really bad guys around the world. And I was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. I didn't like a normal drug case. Yeah. I like things to be like, I like the complete mess. I liked it to be all over the place. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So went to work with Eric. I decided, okay, I'm going to apply for the job. And I met Wim Brown who I'm working with now, who now lives in South Africa and runs Focused Conservation Solutions. Lou left and became the what they call the assistant special agent in charge. And then, of course, in the complete nepotism of DEA, how we operate, mm -hmm. we moved Wim Brown into the group supervisor position, mm -hmm. which, which was perfect for us mm -hmm. and became perfect for me and Eric Stouch, working with Wim Brown as the boss and Lou as the ASAC. Working with Eric was just a tremendous privilege. We worked in Wim and Lou. We worked some of the biggest cases in the world. Eric and I were able to do a case against a guy named Paul LaRue, who was arrested and facing sentencing in the Southern District of New York. And he is one of the uh, most brilliant criminal masterminds the world has ever seen and probably never heard of. And if anybody listening to this podcast wants to Google him. There's a tremendous amount of information on open source on the internet. Mm -hmm. I suggest you read uh, the most recent articles where he testified in the Southern District of New York against some gentleman who we were able to arrest who committed the murder of a Filipino female. And that's kind of the truest sense where he admits to what he is and who he is and everything himself. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by drugs. Whenever you're feeling transformative, think of drugs. Since the discovery of opium, we humans have been obsessed with altered states. We've been snorting, popping, smoking, chugging, and shooting nature's bag of tricks for over 7,000 years. 
A hundred years ago, when Big Pharma was just a little fella, you could shoot up heroin, drink cocaine, and dose your toddlers with morphine after a quick trip to the pharmacy. Since then, the illicit drug trade has exploded into a global cash cow worth up to $500 billion. Drugs come in the form of stimulants, depressants, hallucinogens, dissociatives, opioids, inhalants, and cannabinoids. From Adderall to Zydone, there are at least 150 different ways to sully your temple. Bumblebees, cartwheels, goofballs, jelly babies, sparklers, double bubble, happy dust, snow cone, sleigh ride, tutti frutti, whiz bang, applejack, bubblegum, lollipop, lemon drop, sunshine, teddy bears, scooby snacks, and love nuggets. With fun street names like these, you can understand why it's hard to just say no. Drugs. A hard nut to crack. Cocaine. You can't heroin them all. You know what they say about drug puns. Less is morphine. We became the bilateral investigation group, meaning we don't do any cases unilaterally. We mm -hmm. always work with the local counterparts. Okay. So nothing we do is a unilateral operation by the United States government. We mm -hmm. always work with the law enforcement authorities in the country we're working. So we're never we're never doing anything that is quote unquote the CIA or any of these people. We have a different mandate and different rules we have to follow. We finished the LaRue case with the arrests and then the, we went into this mercenary case. LaRue cooperated and we had all these U.S. trained and Western trained mercenaries that were conducting murders around the world on, on his behalf. So we targeted that group. We targeted two guys who were as part of this with LaRue who, um, who were two U, former U.K. sit. Well, they were U.K. sits, but they were living in Thailand who had ties to the outlaw motorcycle gang in Thailand and they brought in the sergeant of arms and they were going to protect a drug load. And, and then we had, I forgot about the uh, Chinese triad member who was, we, who was selling um, North Korean produced methamphetamine to us. And so we had, we targeted him also and were able to capture him. And when he was arrested, he admitted to something like selling I want to say 50,000 kilos of North Korean methamphetamine. Wow. Yeah, it was it was pretty fascinating. Because I didn't know, you know, it's each step you learn something. Mm -hmm. The only reason people become subject matter experts is because they get to a subject and they're interested in it, right? right. You know? yeah. And you become a subject matter expert as you learn when you're going. So when we finished that case, we were like, oh, okay, what's next? What's going to be any, is there any, going to be anything that's as interesting as LaRue? And I, nothing really ever is, but, but I, because I always define my life as, my law enforcement life as my life before Paul LaRue and my life after Paul LaRue. So then Wim Brown, who was our boss at the time, he decided to go become the country attache in Nairobi, Kenya. So Wim gets over to Kenya and we used to laugh. Wim was Mr. Africa, loved Africa, right? And we were all like, what the fuck is Wim doing, right? <laughs> and I went to West Africa with Wim, and I did all the, you know, Togo, Ghana, Liberia. And, and sure, they're interesting spots. But I never thought of it as a place I would fucking want to live, yeah. to be quite honest with you. Um, Come on, Liberia. That I mean... Liberia is garden spot, right? You know. It's like it's like Newark. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But so Wim goes to Nairobi, Kenya, and he's the country attaché, and he says, oh, you and Eric need to come over and do a case here. You should help me. You know, let's do something really big, right? 
So Eric and I go, okay, we'll go over to Nairobi. Number one, the plane flight completely sucked because it was like 20 hours, right? You know, of course, it's your eight-hour flight to Amsterdam, your four-hour layover, mm-hmm. and your eight-hour flight. Yep. So you get to Nairobi, and you just feel like shit, mm-hmm. right? But it was okay. You know, yeah. you get there. And we're used to feeling like shit, because I had been doing Thailand the year before, so right. you're used to feeling like shit. Eric and I were kind of interested in this target by the name of Ali Punjani, who was this big guy down in Mombasa, Indian guy, billionaire. Um, but we knew he was a drug dealer, so mm-hmm. we were like, ah, he might be the right guy to target. Sorry, what year are we in now? Two. 2014. And Wim talks to a few people. He said, I think you guys need to look at this family, the Akashas. So Warwick and I start doing our homework, and we're like, okay, these guys are interesting. They fit our understanding. They were basically a mafia family running Kenya, okay, running Mombasa, Kenya. And so we understood mafia, Eric and I, you know, coming from the States. We get the whole... You know, when you read about their father who was running drugs and got killed in the gangland shooting in Amsterdam over a drug debt, that all made sense to Eric and I. So we are like, okay, we can target these guys. Then as part of this, as we start targeting the Akashas, we learn that their drug guy in this is a guy named Vicky Goswami, okay, an Indian guy. That just sounds so great. Oh, Vicky, Vicky is the greatest drug dealer on the face of the earth. If he was on... If he was in Mexico, he'd have been bigger than Chapo Goswami. He sounds like a rock star. He is a rock yeah. star. He, one of his quotes to us was, Vicky Goswami is not a name, it's a brand. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And I encourage everybody to Google him. He was He's married to an Indian Bollywood star. Of course he is. Who was the first woman to ever post topless in India. Of course she is. is right? Yeah. Right? He's connected to... Two mob figures in India named uh, named Dawood Ibrahim and Shota mm-hmm. Rajan. Dawood is one of the most wanted men in the world mm-hmm. right now. Was the man responsible for the terrorist bombing in India and Mumbai in 1993. I mean, Vicky is just, Vicky is a rock star. So we get into this. Again, as you said before, it's kind of Pandora's box. We walk into something and it just keeps going like this. And we're like, oh boy. Yeah. And, and to this day, the case has continued to grow since I've retired. But at that time, mm-hmm. we were able to develop a case on Bakhtash Akasha, Ibrahim Akasha, um, his brother, Vicky Goswami, and Ghulam Hussein, who's the transporter. And Ghulam Hussein's another interesting guy in and of himself. One of the biggest transporters of heroin from Pakistan to the East Coast of India in the world. And just a tremendously interesting guy. So we were able to develop a case and we arrested these guys in Kenya, down in Mombasa, with Wim, Dr. Masa, who was the um, head of the Kenyan narcotics unit, formal vetted unit that Wim created. And they had delivered us 100 kilos of heroin to our informant. And Eric and I had it sitting in our hotel room. Which was pretty funny because a lot of guys seize 100 kilos of heroin, but to actually in an undercover deal have 100 kilos of heroin handed to you is is not a normal yeah. thing. It's not a normal thing, even for the DEA. How so, much money is that? was that at the time? Wholesale price of that heroin in the United States was about $60,000. If you cut it and gram it out, multi, oh, multi, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's unfair. There's it's an hard. algorithm for that. Yeah, for, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we arrest these guys, and now we need them to get them back to the U.S. They fight the extradition here. These guys bribe judges. 
they bribed public officials. It was a complete and utter two-year nightmare. We had no help in getting them out from the Office of International Affairs of the Department of Justice. They were complete limp-dick non-entity in this in helping us. Um, we were just swimming upstream and we were making no headway um, in trying to get these guys out. Southern District of New York, who's prosecuting the case, is, is fighting with us because our relationship with them is so strong mm -hmm. from special operations and specifically our unit, the, bi the Bilateral Investigative Unit. But we're making no headway. So then finally... Quick interruption yes. while we're talking about the Southern District of New York. Yes. Have I already asked you if you listen to um, Stay Tuned with Preet, Preet Bharara? Oh, my God. I haven't. I have not. You have to listen to this guy. Pre I know Preet. Okay. We've met Preet. I love his voice. Yeah. I can listen to him talk all day long. Yeah. He is one of the most eloquent human beings I've ever heard. Uh-huh. He doesn't get emotional. No. He just talks about what he knows. Mm -hmm. And he did a couple press conferences on the case Eric and I did on mercenary okay. case. So yeah. But he seems like a stand-up guy. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, look, he's one of the few I will say I think is a stand-up guy. Now, don't get me wrong. All these guys have their own internal motivations. But Preet was about doing the right thing. Well, what he sort of I think prides himself on is like, oh, he I'm went, not. Yeah. I'm not morally compromised. I'm not a morally compromised person. Which is exactly, I I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So what happens is, and I I'll never forget. I got a call from Wim. It was, uh, he says, you know, can we get these guys out of there? How fast could you have a plane here if we did? Because what we found out is through Wim's relationships with the Kenyan authorities, the Kenyan authorities decided they were willing to not extradite. They were aware of the corruption, and. I give uh, President Kenyatta tremendous um, credit for saying I am going to judicially expel them out of the country of Kenya to the United States to face their charges. Wow. They were a true threat to national security of Kenya. Kenyatta made a bold move and said, I'm going to expel them to the United States, but I can't have, you, you can't have dawdling. Like, we got to get them, get the plane here and get them out. Okay. Well, that sounds easy because everybody thinks, of course, the U.S. government just has planes to the, at their disposal to do whatever. No. The Defense Department and people in that world have planes at their disposal. Right. Okay. The Department of Justice and the DEA does not have a huge budget to just have planes at their disposal, especially when they're facing charges and we have what we call is a first brought charge, which means they have to land in the district they're charged. Oh. When they hit the United States. Oh, man. Okay. So we picked them up. We chartered a private jet. Which we, super cheap. Which is super cheap, right? <laughs> and the whole process of doing that within DEA is an art in and of itself. But we got it. And we flew into Nairobi. And with the great work of the Kenyan authorities and having them ready to go. They had them, they turned them over to us. We put them on the jet and we took back off for the United States. Wow. But, but that really came about as a result of Wim Brown's relationship with Dr. Massa and the Kenyan authorities. And now who is the current head of the DPP, um, Haji, who is 
the most stand-up, straightforward guy you're going to see, and he's trying to rid that country of corruption with Kenyatta. I think that you'll see things proved out in court. The Akashas are due for trial October 22nd. Yeah, I would bet that they're either going to plea or they'll go to trial and they'll be found guilty. There's no doubt. The, the evidence is overwhelming. Wow. Um, they're the type of people that need to go. Yeah. Um, corruption in some countries runs rampant, and the only way you, you maintain security is by getting rid of people like this. Right. You know, drug, drug dealers of an upper level are really a threat to the security of that country. And are they not... I mean, like cutting off the head of the snake, like I totally understand that. But are they not then replaced by whoever is sort of in line next or a competitor or... Could be. Yeah. Could be. I mean, there's people who are still doing it and, and you can never stop. But mm-hmm. if, you know, everybody has has bastardized the drug war now in the United States. But I, I, I look at um, fighting drugs like cutting grass. Okay. You have to do it. You got to kind of maintain yeah. it. Okay? Yeah, you got to maintain your grass. You got to make your yard look good, right? right? And you got to do that in the world. Yeah. And there's nothing that exponentially can make criminals as much money as drugs. Nothing. Um. So yeah. And they're always going to be around. They're always going to be around. Yeah. So, but but what you do is you look. You, you have to look the right way. Like like Larue's organization when we took that off, we completely decimated it. I don't know if we completely decimated the Akasha organization, but we severely, severely crippled it um, because we took off the head. Now, yep. so, now his, his son's trying to come up, and his wife, she's a, a dirtbag too, and she's in the middle of all this, um, and his nephews and all that. Sure, but it, it's going to take them a while to recreate that because their problem is, is they have nobody like Vicky Goswami. And Vicky... He Mm -hmm. is it. Best drug dealer in the world. And I will say this. One of the most engaging people in the world. Charisma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's not a name. He's a brand. Mm -hmm. So Vicky's great. So finish that. And we continued on. And and I guess as a follow-up and and your your listeners can check... um, we finished, we, we ultimately got the, it took us two years to get the Akashas out, by the way. And then we got them out and we continued down our path of pushing out this case and developing it out further. And we identified the source of supply for the heroin, for the Akashas. And it was a guy named Muhammad Asif Afiz. And we arrested him in London, August 25th of 2000. 17. Oh, okay. Okay. My Year birthday. Ago. Day Your I turned birthday. 50. Yeah, the day I turned 50. Wow. Um, so he was arrested in working in connection with the UK's National Crime Agency. We ran an operation. He's pending extradition now to the United States. I'm now retired, so the guys who are continuing to work it, and I know where they're going next. Yeah. Um, and the next indictment will be huge. And... It'll be a big deal. But Mohammed Asif Afiz was one of the largest traffickers of heroin and precursor chemicals around the world. Wow. So we finished that. And then over that, that year, I kind of kind of had my interest waning in my agency. 
and I started looking for jobs, but nothing really was interesting me. Mm -hmm. um, a couple friends of mine are running for political office, and they talked about bringing me in to run some local police and local drug stuff for them. I don't know if that interests me or not. Um, kind of does. I like being at home now. Mm -hmm. I like, like hanging out at home. I've spent enough time away from home over the years. And... Wim Brown retired a year before I did, and he kept saying, oh, you're going to come to work with me in Africa. And I was like, fuck Africa. <laughs> Not going back to fucking Africa. Right. Okay? I don't care about fucking mm -hmm. Africa. I'm mm -hmm. tired of caring about Africa. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. And I was just being your normal curmudgeonly prick cop. Okay? And I was just tired. I just wanted to be home. I just, I, I had missed so much of my girls at times growing up. I had missed so much of my wife, the things she was involved in. I just, and, and we have horses, and I love my horses, and I love my dogs, and I just wanted to be fucking home for a change. Thanks for joining me for part two of my conversation with former DEA agent Tom Sendrick. Join me next time for the final part of our conversation. This week, I've included links in the show notes if you want to read more about the cases he worked on, including the shakedown of the Akasha organization and Paul LaRue. I'm sure it wasn't technically called a shakedown, but it made me feel like Sonny Crockett, so bear with me. Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with the podcast, and you can also email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. See you next time.